You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, when we left off in part one, detectives had ruled out Robert Hayes' brothers, Jesse and John, as having DNA profiles consistent with that of the Daytona Beach killer. Detective Matthew Matino of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office Tactical Unit testified about surveilling Robert Hayes. He and his team tailed Hayes in plain clothes, getting as close to him as possible while remaining undercover. The members of the unit watched Hayes in order to identify businesses he frequented, vehicles he used, his residence and who else might live there, places of employment, and so on. They learned he resided with his mom, Florence, at number 6 at 5500 North Flagler Drive on the second floor of a large apartment building. On September 13th, the surveillance team was aware that Hayes had a court date that morning for an unrelated child custody proceeding at the Palm Beach County Courthouse. They staked out his apartment building around 8 a.m. They fully expected him to take an Uber, as he had generally preferred this method of transport during their surveillance. This is all taken verbatim from Detective Matino's testimony. This time, he walked straight out of the apartment westbound, literally, I don't know, two blocks, 200 yards, to a Palm Tran bus stop, which is our county's public transportation. Question, and you had eyes on, you had eyes on him the entire time? Answer, yeah, we had eyes on him, correct. Yeah, there was about five or six of us in radio contact. We maintained a constant visual the entire time. Again, unmarked cars, binoculars, stuff like that. Right before he got, he stood at the bus stop for a few minutes, and then he ended up going into the corner store there. I don't know the name off the top of my head. Question, did he answer, yeah, there's a little convenience convenience store there on the northwest side. He went in. He exited the store with a beer can, what we later determined was a beer can, but it was a beverage in a brown paper bag, exited the store, and went right back to the bus stop. Question, and what happened after he went back to the bus stop? Answer, well, he drank, you know, he downed the beer pretty good. And then after he got done drinking it, I think he got a visual on the bus coming. So he chucked it over on the side of the building in between the business and the sidewalk. He also lit up a cigarette at that point, which he got from his backpack. Question, and did he discard that cigarette? Answer, yeah, he took a couple puffs off the cigarette, discarded that right there, and then actually ended up throwing it into the gutter right on the sidewalk along the curb. Question, and was, answer, and the bus showed up, uh, the Palm Tran bus showed up, you know, a couple minutes later. He got on. One of my, another one of our agents, again, undercover Jamil Amar, actually got out of his vehicle and stood right next to him as if he was going to 
right next to Mr. Hayes as if he was going to join him on the bus or, you know, be another customer of the bus. So he was right there with him, you know, arm's length, watching him smoke the cigarette and discard it. He was on the cell phone with me and, you know, he was chatting it up with me while he was looking for the bus, but watching Hayes while he discarded the beer can along the building and threw the cigarette into the curb area, the street. Question, and did you and your agents, fellow agents, collect this cigarette, this discarded cigarette? Answer, yes. Question, and the beer can? Answer, we sure did. As soon as he got on the bus, I immediately responded there. Jamil used rubber gloves, evidence bags, things of that nature, retrieved both the beer can and the cigarette. The beer can was still in the bag and cold to the touch with condensation, the same exact one that I witnessed him throw with the binoculars. It was about three quarters of the way finished. Yeah, we retrieved both items and then met with detectives. Question, and those were ultimately submitted into property and evidence? Answer, correct. Absolutely. Yeah, I believe we submitted them to, I think FDLE either ran them up to you guys or ran them up to their lab. Question, and then actually the day before, September 12th, had you also collected a Heineken beer bottle? Answer, we did. Yeah, we collected a Heineken beer bottle. That day, he went down from the apartment and discarded a whole trash pail into the community dumpster. Question, okay, and it's from that answer, which was at his apartment complex in the parking lot. Question, and it's from that trash pail that you found, or the trash bag that you found the Heineken bottle? Answer, correct, absolutely. So, to recap, on Friday, September 30th, 2019, agents watched Hayes consume and then drop a cigarette butt and a steel reserve beer at a West Palm bus stop. As soon as he got on the bus, the agent scooped them up and ran them back to the lab for testing. FDLE analyst Jillian White was the one who conducted the tests on the beer can and the butt from Hayes. She compared them to the profile of the oral swab in Laqueta's case. Her report, dated September 14th of 2019, stated that, quote, That observed foreign DNA profile on the oral swabs is greater than 700 billion times more likely to occur if that sample originated from Robert Tyrone Hayes, the secondary standard beer can and butt, than from an unrelated individual, end quote. In other words, it was 700 billion times more likely that it was Robert Hayes' DNA in Laqueta's mouth than anyone else. And note that Jillian White testified that 700 billion was the highest statistical ratio that the FDLE will provide in a report. We will hear the true number momentarily. Robert Tyrone Hayes was arrested at his home on September 15, 2019, on suspicion of murder for the 2016 killing of 32-year-old Rachel Bay in Palm Beach County. He was held without bond. After the execution of a search warrant for buckle swabs from Hayes, Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office Crime Lab DNA analyst Selinda Swords was able to obtain a complete male profile. This primary sample was tested against the secondary samples, the beer can and butt, and they were a match. This was simply to confirm that they were using the right DNA. The buckle swab sample was then compared to the mixed profile taken from Rachel Bay's genital swabs. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office Forensic Biology Unit determined that the mixed DNA profile recovered from those swabs was approximately 2 quadrillion, 290 trillion times more likely if it originated from Rachel Bay and Robert Tyrone Hayes than if the DNA profile originated from Rachel Bay and an unknown individual. Further, 
The unit determined that the mixed DNA profile recovered from Rachel's left hand was approximately one septillion, 340 sextillion times, more likely if it originated from Rachel Bay, Robert Tyrone Hayes, and an unknown individual than if the DNA profile obtained originated from Rachel Bay and two unknown individuals in the population. Remember, a third person's DNA was detected on Rachel's hand, but not in her vagina. That was all Hayes. Jillian White also tested Hayes' buckle swab against the profile extracted from the oral swab in the Laketa Gunther case. And the foreign DNA profile that was obtained from the oral swabs from Laketa matched to the buccal swab obtained from Robert Tyrone Hayes. Statistically, the foreign DNA profile from the oral swabs was greater than approximately 300 septillion times more likely to occur if the sample originated from Robert Tyrone Hayes than from an unrelated individual. Finally, on May 4, 2020, FDLE analyst Meredith McCaskill issued a report confirming that the partial foreign DNA previously obtained from Iwana Patton's vaginal swabs matched the DNA profile from Robert Hayes' buckle swab at all eight loci in the sample. The partial foreign DNA profile, which was obtained in the vaginal swabs, was approximately 24,000 times more likely to occur if that sample originated from Robert Tyrone Hayes than from an unrelated individual. This number was relatively small because it was just a partial sample. But still, it was enough. They had him. After the arrest of Robert Hayes, press conferences were held in both jurisdictions. In Palm Beach, Sheriff Rick Bradshaw credited a joint effort with Volusia County authorities for the monumental arrest. He said, quote, Through a fantastic team effort between ourselves, the FDLE, the state's attorney's office, and our counterparts up in Daytona Beach, we've been able to take what we believe is a serial killer off the streets. Had we not done this, we're pretty sure he would have killed again. Special Agent Troy Walker from the FDLE credited forensic genealogy for being crucial to public safety. He said, quote, Without genetic genealogy, predators like Mr. Hayes will continue to live in our neighborhoods, visit our parks, our libraries, restaurants, and go to our nightlife entertainment districts to continue to hunt for victims. There was even a quote from the founder of GEDmatch, Curtis Rogers. Jedmatch is based in West Palm Beach, and Rogers was proud that his company had helped to take Hayes off the streets. He told 12 News, quote, As Sheriff Bradshaw put it here in Palm Beach, there would have been more bodies out there had they not picked him up, end quote. Finally, Lori Napolitano, then chief of the FDLE forensic genealogy team, talked about the importance of uploading to Jedmatch and opting in. Hear, hear. Rachel Bay's two brothers had flown in for the occasion. They had only had to wait three years for resolution to their sister's case. The families in Daytona had to wait much, much longer. Over in Volusia County, Daytona Beach Police Chief Craig Capri announced the arrest of Robert Hayes in Palm Beach and said that he was now being linked to three Volusia murders. He called Hayes a, quote, disgusting serial killer who is off the streets now. Former Daytona Beach Police Chief Chitwood, who had been the man in charge in 2005 and 2006 when the Daytona Beach murders started, was now Volusia County Sheriff. He said this was the one piece of unfinished business that he didn't resolve when he left office. He credited law enforcement for working this case for more than 10 years. He had spoken to the victims' families, he said, and they were ecstatic. 
Detective Dave Denardi later told the Times Union that he personally spoke to the families of the four murdered victims in Daytona. He said, quote, they were all very, I, I spoke to them over the phone. Their emotions ran from they were happy, in a state of disbelief, shock. One of them broke down crying, end quote. R.J. Larizza, the state's attorney for the 7th Judicial Circuit, would not address the next steps or when Hayes would be charged in Volusia. He said the investigation into him and his crimes was ongoing. And sure enough, all the usual investigative stuff proceeded next. Now that they had the DNA match and were convinced that Hayes had killed Laqueta, Iwana, and Rachel, Daytona law enforcement and the FDLE needed to make the case against him as strong as possible. They needed somehow to tie him to Julie, on whom Hayes' DNA was never located, and to Stacy Gage, which would be even more difficult since there was scant evidence in that case. Daytona investigators needed to pull together their own case against Hayes, separately from the Rachel Bay case, which was in a different jurisdiction. They started with a search warrant for Hayes' home. They also got a warrant for Hayes' cell phone calls and activity during the time span March 6th of 2016 until the morning of March 7th of 2016, which is when Rachel Bay was killed. At trial, Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office Detective James Evans showed a map illustrating the trajectory of Hayes' cell phone that night and testified in painstaking detail about the movement of the phone. The prosecutor summed it up at trial as follows, quote, On the night of March 6 into the morning of March 7, that phone starts out hitting off towers by Mr. Hayes' home. It travels down to an area where Rachel Bay is known to frequent. It then travels to the area of the Ramada Inn, where Mr. Hayes worked and where, based upon his own admissions, he used to take his back page dates. It stays in that area for a period of time around the Ramada Inn, and then it heads up the rural, desolate highway of Beeline, all the way up to a tower that hits and that covers the location where Ms. Bay's body is located a few hours later. He hits after midnight up there, and early that morning, Ms. Bay is found. And then it's also where the phone returns to. This phone doesn't keep going up the Beeline Highway. Once it hits off that tower on Beeline, it comes back to the towers by Mr. Hayes' house. And that's where it is the rest of the morning, hitting off the towers by Mr. Hayes' house. So this was circumstantial evidence that Hayes had been the one to pick up Rachel and drive her up the Beeline Highway and discard her there dead. They also had her cell phone records, which showed that after her death, her phone had been in use for several days in an area of Palm Beach that included Hayes' home on North Flagler Drive in West Palm Beach, according to court documents. Hayes lived less than a mile away from Rachel had last been seen. On September 15, 2019, Detective Evans and William Frazier of the FDLE sat down with Hayes for a custodial interview in the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office Violent Crime Division headquarters. The six foot four, 220-pound Hayes was crying and emotional. When asked why he was upset, he said, quote, They just pulled me out of my house and my indiscernible man, I don't know what the fuck is going on, bro. The officers were direct with him and read him his rights. Then they got down to it and asked him if he knew Rachel Bay. They showed him a photo of her. Hayes denied knowing Rachel. He kind of danced around whether he might have had sex with her. I don't know her, so I can't tell you if I had sex with her. I don't know her. I don't know who this woman is. Detective Evans, you've never seen her before in your life? Mr. Hayes, no. 
Detective Evans, she advertised via Backpage, you know, and to be quite frank with you, sir, we have irrefutable scientific evidence that establishes that you know her. Not only did you know her, you had sex with her, Mr. Hayes. Mr. Hayes, I said, sir, I don't know this woman, sir. Hayes also stated that he had not been on Beeline Highway in several years and that he had never traveled it farther west than Dyer Park. Rachel was found approximately 18 miles northwest of Dyer Park. But they started to get somewhere when Hayes admitted to frequently paying sex workers for sex. He admitted to using Backpage.com to meet up with female sex workers, even though he had a fiancé with whom he had been in a relationship since 2014. He patronized sex workers as many as 50 times between 2012 and 2016, he said. Remember, Rachel Bay had advertised on Backpage, and so did some of the other victims. Hayes said he would meet the sex workers at a local La Quinta or the Ramada where he worked. Hayes claimed that he always used a condom when he paid for sex. But then the investigators got a really important admission out of Hayes. Even though they already knew this, having him confirm it was crucial to their case. Hayes admitted to living in the Daytona Beach area from 2000 to 2006. As a student at Bethune-Cookman University, he had a lot of one-night stands with women he met either on Main Street or Ridgewood Avenue, and some of them liked to get paid. The interrogation about Rachel Bay continued. Detective Evans, we have your DNA semen inside of her vagina. Mr. Hayes, that's impossible. I don't know this woman. No, sir, I don't have anything to do with this. Detective Evans, whatsoever? Mr. Hayes, no, sir. Investigator Frazier, how do you know, sir? Mr. Hayes, I don't have, I, I don't hurt people, man. I go to work and I come home. Investigator Frazier, did you make the statement to us a little while ago that sometimes you might have been a little bit messed up when you had the back page dates? Mr. Hayes, yes. Investigator Frazier, any chance that you had any loss of memory during those times? Mr. Hayes, no, sir. At the end of the interview, Detective Evans pointed out that despite them not telling him anything about what had happened to Rachel Bay, Hayes had said, I didn't do anything to anybody, man. The interview concluded with Hayes saying, quote, I'd like to speak with a lawyer, man. This is bullshit. I don't want to talk to you all no more. I don't know what the fuck it is you're, you're all trying to pull on me, man, but I don't, I want to go home to my family, bro. I don't, I need to talk to somebody, man. Okay, let's take a detour here and discuss the gun. If you recall, the 2006 investigation and ballistics analysis by Omar Felix showed that the shell casings located near Julie Green and Awana Patton were fired from the same firearm. Meanwhile, the bullets that had killed Laqueta and Julie were fired from the same type of gun as exhibited by the same rifling markings, a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson VE firearm. Back in 06, the strongest lead they had was this gun, because it was easy to compile a list of people in the Daytona area who had purchased one of these models since the commencement of its manufacture in the early 2000s. And you'll recall that that's an avenue the investigators went down. They tracked and interviewed individuals in the Daytona Beach area who had purchased one of these guns. The subjects were not told the specific purpose of the police inquiry. All they were told was that they were conducting a criminal investigation. Well, one of the people they talked to was Robert Hayes. Hayes's name was on the list back in 2006 because it was discovered that in December of 2005, 
he had purchased a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson VE firearm and the same type of ammunition found at the Julie and Nawana crime scenes from Buck's Guns in Daytona Beach, Florida, near Bethune-Cookman University. I saw copies of the receipt for this gun purchase. Hayes paid a total of $288.80. In the prosecution's opening statement at Hayes' trial, they said, quote, Mr. Hayes, on November 17th of 05, goes to Buck's gun rack, and he fills out the application he needs to fill out to purchase a firearm. The address is the same as Hayes's at the time. He returns on December 2nd of 05 and actually takes possession of a firearm from Buck's gun rack. Specifically, he buys two things and walks out the door with them that day. A Smith & Wesson 40 caliber VE semi-automatic handgun. He also walks out with one box of federal 40 caliber American Eagle ammunition. There's a receipt for the purchase. On all the paperwork is his date of birth, his address, his signature, all identifying information for Mr. Hayes back in December of 2005. End quote. Nelson Buckwald, the owner of Buck's Gun Rack, testified about the three-day waiting period, the paperwork filled out by Hayes, and the background check. As required by law, Hayes had to fill out all sorts of information, including his phone number, address, and cell phone number. All of this information was used against him later to prove that he bought a gun that could be the murder weapon. He purchased the gun right there in Daytona just weeks before investigators believe it was used to kill Laqueta, then Julie, then Iwana. Hayes was contacted by task force members twice. The first time was by Daytona Beach Detective J.J. Warren, and the second time was by a different task force member. Detective Warren met and spoke with Hayes on March 21, 2006, on Jefferson Street, where he was living at the time. Here is Detective Warren's summary report of this interaction. Quote, Contact was made with Hayes on March 21, 2006. Hayes advised that he did purchase the handgun, serial number P as in Papa, D as in Dog, B as in Boy, 7307, from Buck's gun rack on November 17, 2005. He advised he gave the handgun to his mother, Florence Hayes, of West Palm Beach a week later. More than a decade later, when asked to recall why this gun lead hadn't been followed up on, in other words, someone on the task force should have contacted Hayes's mother to verify his story that he gave her the gun, Detective Warren said that Hayes gave Warren his mother's phone number so the investigators could follow the chain of custody of the gun, something the task force was supposed to do. Here is Warren's explanation on the witness stand, quote, Due to the fact that the phone number was outside of the city limits, outside of the county, in a different area within Florida, we would relay it to the FDLE agents that we were working with. Question, so you did nothing to follow up on that information? Answer, correct, sir. No one seems to know exactly how this ball got dropped. No one knows either why Hayes was not asked to submit a DNA sample at the time, something the gun owners were requested to do. If he was asked and refused, that is not in the police notes regarding the interaction with Hayes. Anyway, as the prosecution noted at the trial, back in 2006, Hayes was put on notice by this police contact that they were on to his connection to the murder weapon. We don't know what happened to the gun after that. As far as we know, Hayes never used it again. 
He told the task force members that he gave the gun away to his mother. However, his mother later denied that on the witness stand. Florence Hayes testified that her son had never given her a gun. And despite this tale, Hayes brazenly reported the gun stolen. Randy Edwards of the Riviera Beach Police Department testified that on December 15, 2006, he took a report from a Robert Hayes. He wanted to report a gun stolen. It was a Smith & Wesson Model VE stainless with a black handle. Hayes said he had been visiting his brother at an apartment complex on Avenue J in Riviera Beach, and the gun had been stolen from the floorboard of his car. Officer Edwards was skeptical of the story because Avenue J was a high crime rate area, and Hayes claimed to have left his car unlocked with the windows down. Hayes said the serial number was P as in Papa, O as in Oscar, B as in Bravo, 7307, and he had paid $288 for the firearm. Hayes' own actions, reporting the gun stolen, undermined his own tale of giving the gun away. Prosecutors believe he never used that gun again, and I'm totally speculating here, but I'd bet that the ballistics analysis of whatever projectile was used to kill Stacy Gage was different, which is why they've not been able to tie her murder to the other victims of Hayes. But no one knows what Hayes did with the Smith & Wesson. Anyway, one explanation for why the ball was sort of dropped in this gun inquiry back in 06 was the FDLE profile of the Daytona Beach killer. After Hayes' arrest, some members of law enforcement who had worked the case commented that the profile provided to them in 2006 by the FDLE may have led them astray. In short, when they interviewed Robert Hayes about his gun ownership in 06, they thought they were looking for a white killer. This from the News Journal, quote, At a press conference on Monday following Hayes' arrest, authorities revealed that the profile created by Davis fit that of a white killer and were not expecting a black person to be the suspect. End quote. Chief Chitwood said of the dropped gun inquiry, quote, I can tell you it's an absolute legitimate question that the profile factored into the questioning of somebody, and he was automatically written off because he was a black male. Let's take a look at some background information for Hayes. Robert Tyrone Hayes was born March 12, 1982. He was raised in Palm Beach County, Florida, where a lot of his family still lives. His mother is Florence Hayes. She raised several kids on her own after Hayes's father was killed. After graduating from high school, Hayes moved up to Daytona Beach in 2000 to attend Bethune-Cookman University, where he got a band scholarship and was a cheerleader. School records reflect his enrollment from 2000 to 2006, when he graduated with a bachelor's degree in, get this, criminal justice. The murders occurred during his senior year, when he was living at 427 Jefferson Street in Daytona with a roommate. It doesn't seem as though Hayes utilized his criminal justice degree in any legitimate pursuits during his postgraduate life. At various points, he worked as a cook and as a security guard at a bar. It's probable, though, that as a student of criminal justice, Hayes was hyper-aware of how to avoid being detected by police as he went about his attacks on women. One has to wonder why he started killing people in the first place, whether it was some sort of compulsion or whether after studying investigative techniques and procedures, he wanted to see if he could outwit the authorities.
We know that he learned that investigators could connect his crimes through the ballistics evidence, and it is believed that his M.O. changed to avoid detection since Rachel Bay was strangled. After graduating from Bethune-Cookman, Hayes worked at the Florida DCF. It's not clear where he was living at that point, but they do believe he was living in Daytona, where Stacy Gage was killed in late 2007. In 2008, Hayes moved out of state and lived and worked as a cook in Charlotte, North Carolina, with his best friend and the friend's girlfriend. While there, he took classes at UNC Charlotte. He then moved to Atlanta, Georgia from December 2010 to May 2012 to attend culinary school at Le Cordon Bleu before returning to South Florida towards the end of 2012. He initially stayed with his sister Terrace in Palm Beach and then got his own place on Flagler Drive. Then he moved back with his mom at her place at 1270 30th Street. He moved into his own place in November of 2016. This from the probable cause affidavit in the Rachel Bay case, quote, In March of 2016, he lived in the area of 54th Street and North Flagler Drive in West Palm Beach, which is approximately one mile from where Rachel Bay was last seen. As an aside, Detective Denardi, Palm Beach County authorities, and state's attorney investigators contacted multiple law enforcement agencies in North Carolina and Georgia, where Hayes lived, but have uncovered no other murders that they can link Hayes to in those areas. When Hayes was arrested, he was living with his fiancée, a woman he had been in a relationship with since 2014, in an unassuming apartment building at 5500 North Flagler Drive in West Palm Beach. Hayes was working at Cheetah's Lounge. He had no criminal record to speak of. Heavy.com reports that he had a number of traffic citations, mostly from his time in North Carolina. There he had been arrested on charges of driving without a license, operating a motor vehicle without insurance, speeding, and driving with a revoked or suspended tag. He was arrested in Palm Beach County in August 2003 and charged with petty theft, but those charges were dropped within a few months. He was also arrested in May 2006 in Palm Beach County on a charge of disorderly conduct. That case was also dropped by prosecutors. Investigators have never been able to figure out what Hayes used for a vehicle in connection with his crimes. For a few months in 2015 and 2016, he drove a silver Honda Pilot, but it was repossessed before the murders. No vehicle was registered to him at the time of the killings. There were some things about Hayes that his attorney worked to get excluded from the evidence presented at trial because they might prejudice the jury against him. There were several motions in limine filed by his defense team to prevent the prosecution from bringing up the following matters. 1. Complaints and legal actions during Hayes' employment with Howley's Restaurant, located at 4700 South Dixie Highway, West Palm Beach, around April of 2018, including but not limited to harassment complaints against Hayes by female employees of the restaurant, complaining about explicit emails and photographs sent by him to female employees showing personal parts of his body, and sexually explicit emails from Hayes to female employees. Two, Hayes's 10,547 pages of Facebook postings between March 3rd of 2014 and October 25th of 2019 under the username Vanity, 
containing a mixture of sexually explicit comments, photographs of nude and semi-nude women, and photographs of marijuana and other illicit drugs. Number three, anything having to do with, quote, the discovery of the decomposed body of Stacy Gage, a known prostitute in Port Orange, Florida, on or about January 3, 2008, as a possible fourth victim associated with the Laqueta Gunther, Julie Green, and Awana Patton homicides in Daytona Beach, Florida, end quote. Yes, you heard that correctly. No evidence relating to Stacy Gage at all was admissible at trial. And number four, anything having to do with a living victim, initials LK. Now, this part is really interesting. When Robert Hayes was arrested in September of 2019, a woman whose initials are LK saw his face on the news reports and recognized him. In fact, she would never forget his face, she told Daytona police in an interview on October 22nd. She said that sometime back in the mid-2000s, right around the time of the Daytona Beach murders, she had been working as a sex worker and had a run-in with Hayes. He pointed a gun at her and threatened to kill her and forced her to perform oral sex on him. Despite being traumatized by his threats, L.K. was able to escape. R.J. Larizza, the state's attorney for the 7th Judicial Circuit, confirmed that a witness corroborated L.K.'s statement. L.K. had never reported this incident. Now that Hayes was locked up, she felt more comfortable doing so and approached police with her story. So as you can hear, Hayes was not only a multiple murderer, but he was also a perv who sexually harassed women at his workplace, posted inappropriate sexy stuff, and had at least one other known victim who had survived his assault on her. Even without those matters being presented against him at trial, the evidence against Hayes was strong. He lived in Daytona in late 2005 and early 2006, right near the locations where Laqueta, Julie, and Awana were last seen. He was living with his mother on West 30th Street in Riviera Beach in Palm Beach County when Rachel was killed. He purchased a weapon consistent with the specific murder weapon right before the murders at a gun shop right near his school. He lied to the police about giving the gun to his mother and filed a false police report. It's believed that it was stolen. Hayes's phone was within the vicinity of where Rachel's body was found on the night she was killed. And, lest we forget, his DNA was found on Laqueta, Iwana, and Rachel. On November 21, 2019, a Volusia County grand jury indicted Hayes for three counts of first-degree murder with a firearm for the deaths of Iwana, Julie, and Laqueta. Prosecutors filed notice that they intended to seek the death penalty that same day. At a press conference announcing the indictments, state's attorney R.J. Larizza said they were not yet prepared to seek an indictment in the Stacey Gage case. They were still working to tie that murder to Hayes. Volusia County wasted no time proceeding with Hayes' trial. On December 6, 2019, he waived an arraignment and entered a plea of not guilty. He was represented by a public defender, Francis Shea, and was held without bond pending trial. On January 8, 2020, Shea filed a motion to appoint Christopher Anderson as co-counsel. I'm not going to get into all the intricacies of the pretrial motions, depositions, experts consulted, exclusions, stipulations, document productions, and so on. But there was one part that we need to understand because it figured very heavily at trial. Remember, Rachel Bay was not killed in Volusia County. Robert Hayes was not on trial in Volusia for her murder, 
only the murders of Laqueta, Julie, and Iwana. But the prosecutors wanted to bring in evidence that they had tied Hayes to Rachel's murder. They felt that evidence about Rachel's case belonged on the record because it was the CODIS hit linking Rachel to the other three murders that eventually led to Hayes. Introduction of this type of evidence in Florida is governed by the Williams Rule, which allows introduction of evidence of other crimes not to show bad character or criminal propensity, but because they are relevant for consideration by the jury of the defendant's motive, the intent, the identity, a common scheme or plan, absence of accident or mistake, or opportunity. On November 30, 2020, R.J. Larizza filed a motion to introduce inextricably intertwined collateral evidence, a notice of intent to rely on Williams' rule evidence. The state argued that they had to be able to present evidence on Rachel's case because that's what led them to Hayes. After a Williams' rule hearing argued by Assistant State Attorney Andrew Urbanik, the judge allowed the state to introduce evidence of Rachel's murder at Hayes' murder trial for his three Daytona victims. Hayes' trial before the Honorable Raul Zambrano commenced on February 11, 2022. We've heard all the evidence against Hayes, so I'm not going to address much of the state's case-in-chief. They presented the evidence over six days of testimony by prosecution witnesses and rested on February 17th. Immediately thereafter, the defense filed three motions for judgment of acquittal, one for each victim. It was a desperate move, and the judge denied all three motions, saying he believed there was sufficient evidence to go to the jury. The defense did what it could to raise reasonable doubt. Hayes participated actively, going to the bench to listen to sidebars with the judge and conferring with and passing notes to his lawyers. The defense attorneys challenged the state's witnesses on cross and at the end of the state's case called their own witnesses. Here is some of what the defense elicited in their attempts to undermine the prosecution's evidence. Officer Greg Seymour testified out of the presence of the jury about the Volusia County Sheriff's Office investigation of the U Pullet junkyard. Remember, U Pullet was where a tire was found that was consistent with the tire tracks and evidence. Officer Seymour said the department received tips or heard reports of prostitution being conducted out of the salvage yard. The defense was trying to insinuate that perhaps one of the victims was killed by someone with ties to you pull it. It was a stretch. The defense called Keisha White, an FDLE senior crime lab analyst. She testified that the tire tracks in Julie's case and the tire tracks in Awana's case were different and were suitable for completely different vehicles. Since Hayes' DNA was never found on Julie, the suggestion was that someone else killed her. Candy Zuliger, who was a consultant for Trinity DNA Solutions, testified that studies she reviewed indicated that sperm can survive in the oral cavity of a living person for as long as 24 hours. Of course, her testimony was intended to cast doubt on whether Hayes might have had sexual interaction with Laqueta well before she was killed by someone else. The prosecutor's cross-examination made her walk back and admit that about six hours is generally considered the usual range based on prominent studies. Plus, Ms. Zuliger admitted on the stand that she was a paid witness hired by the defense for $200 an hour and was paid over $20,000 for her testimony. It didn't look very good.
Points that the defense tried to hammer home throughout the trial included, one, DNA could have been deposited by Hayes several days before someone else killed Laqueta and Awana. They were sex workers. Hayes admitted to frequencing them often, so maybe that's how his DNA was on them. Of course, he said in his interview that he always wore condoms when he had sex with a paid sex worker, so it was hard for the jury to buy his argument that his DNA got on Awana and Laqueta through transactional sex that was unrelated to the murders. Point two, mixed DNA profiles found on many of the victims showed that others could have been involved in the murders. In particular, the contributor of the vaginal swab DNA in Julie Green's case was never identified. Point three, the Smith & Wesson handgun was a very popular model at the time. Just because Hayes bought one does not mean he bought the one. The specific gun was never found. And no shell casing was found in Laqueta's case, indicating perhaps that maybe the gun used was not the same as the others. Point four, Julie was found near a hunting club, and a twenty-two caliber bullet was found near her. Perhaps the projectile and casing and evidence came from the hunting club. Point five, Julie and Awana's cases were linked only by a shell casing, but those shells could have come from a number of different kinds of guns. Casings cannot be linked to a specific bullet. Point six, the cell phone shown to be traveling along the B-Line highway could have been used by someone else, and or a signal could have bounced off a different tower or been faulty. Point seven, phone records of Rachel Bay never showed any calls to or from Robert Hayes. The same was true for all of the other victims. Point eight, Julie Green's feet were found with oily dirt on them, but no one ever tested the material to see where it came from. Yet, the junkyard where a matching tire was found and police had heard had prostitution on the premises, you pull it, had grease and dirt on the ground. Point nine, Julie and Awana had to be transported by car to where they were found, but the defendant never owned an automobile during this time period. And point ten, the bullet from Laqueta's case was corroded, it could be older than the one that would have been used in the crime. Robert Hayes did not take the stand and the defense rested. Then the defense attorneys renewed their motions for judgment of acquittal in all three cases. The judge ruled that, quote, the evidence, when taken in the light most favorable to the state, does establish a prima facie case against the accused, end quote. The case would go to the jury. But first, closing arguments. I'm paraphrasing here. The prosecution contended that it had met its burden of proof for first-degree murder by showing that the victims were deceased, their deaths were caused by the criminal acts of the defendant, and the acts were premeditated. This was exhibited by the purchase of the gun and the lack of any kind of struggle at the scenes. They were essentially taken to remote, out-of-the-way locations and executed for reasons known only to the defendant. The prosecutor reminded the jury of the similarities in all four cases. All four victims were living or working in close proximity to where Hayes was living at the time of the murders. All four were supplementing their income by doing sex work, with at least three of them advertising on Backpage. All four victims were found almost completely nude, except Iwana and Laqueta had their socks on. None of the victims were found with any identification. All four victims were found or positioned lying face down. 
All four victims were females of similar height between 5'2 and 5'6, and similar age, 32 to 45, and similar weight between 95 and 143 pounds. All four victims had narcotics or alcohol in their system at the time of their death. All the victims were murdered or located in secluded areas that would allow the defendant to avoid detection as he would not be seen with them at his usual haunts. The ballistics evidence. Julie Green and Awana Patton were killed with the same gun. Laketa and Julie were killed by this same type of gun. And the casings and the gun were the same type and model that Hayes purchased just one month earlier and then lied about giving away, even though he didn't know what the police inquiry about the gun was focused on. Finally, the DNA evidence. The oral swab from Laketa underwent retesting for 21 loci in 2017, and it yielded a complete male DNA profile. As the analyst Jillian White testified, it was almost unheard of to obtain a complete DNA profile from sperm from an oral sample, because in the oral cavity, it doesn't last very long due to saliva flushing, swallowing, eating, and drinking, and so on. The fact that a complete profile was obtained had never happened in Ms. White's 26 years of work. This meant that it was very recently deposited, coinciding with the time of death. We know that Laketa had been dead for a time since she was decomposing, so the semen sample had to have been deposited right before death. And that DNA profile matched to only one person on the planet, Robert Hayes. In that vein, the prosecutor reminded the jury that Robert Hayes' DNA in the form of semen had been left inside Iwana's vagina, yet testing on her underwear found next to her body showed no foreign DNA. She had never stood up after having sex with Hayes. And the icing on the cake? The evidence showed that Rachel Bay had been dragged across the dirt to where she was dumped, and Robert Hayes' DNA was found on her hand, where he grabbed it to pull her dead body across the ground. The jury deliberated for more than eight hours. Their verdict came in around 6.38 p.m. on the 22nd. Hayes stood anxiously awaiting their decision, looking quite distinguished in a dress shirt and tie, a smattering of gray through his short beard. He showed no emotion, just blinking and sighing slightly as the jury found him guilty on all three counts of first-degree murder. But the jury wasn't dismissed by the judge just yet. The panel had to continue its service through phase two of the trial, the penalty phase. They had to sit through another three days of testimony, this time to help them decide on the prisoner's fate. Their choices were simply the death penalty, which had to be unanimously recommended, or life without parole. Specifically, in deciding whether to recommend the death penalty, the jury was charged with determining, one, whether each aggravating factor was proven beyond a reasonable doubt, two, whether the aggravating factors found to exist beyond a reasonable doubt were sufficient to justify the imposition of the death penalty, three, whether mitigating circumstances were proven by the greater weight of the evidence, four, whether the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating circumstances, and five, whether the defendant should be sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole or death. What's an aggravating factor? Well, it's basically a circumstance that increases the gravity of the crime or the harm to the victim, like the use of a weapon. The aggravating factors justifying the application of the death penalty were laid out by statute, 
and the one the prosecution was advocating for, referred to in shorthand as CCP, was that the murders were carried out in a cold, calculated, and premeditated manner, without moral or legal justification. The jury would have to be unanimous in its finding that CCP applied. Or they could find that the mitigating circumstances, the things in the defendant's life that sort of made his behavior more understandable, applied instead and the sentence of death was not appropriate. One of the jurors, number 18, bailed and simply failed to show for court on the second day of the penalty phase. He or she was replaced with an alternate. The prosecutor's opening statement reminded the jury that they had convicted Hayes of three murders and said they should indeed find that the murders were cold, calculated, and premeditated and warranted the death penalty. Each of these murders were basically on a script, Prosecutor Urbanik stated bluntly. The prosecution introduced a lot of victims' impact statements from the families of Laketa, Julie, and Awana. I'm going to get into them here because I feel it's important to remember that these women, despite being viewed by Robert Hayes simply as disposable sex workers, were much, much more to their loved ones. Laketa's daughter Nikki talked of memories of her mother's laugh, playing with her, trips to McDonald's. She said her mom's death had a butterfly effect on her and her little sister. The what-ifs and what-could-have-beens either kept me up at night or haunted my dreams. My mom mattered, Nikki said. Another witness read aloud a victim's impact statement by Barbara Rurak, Laketa's mother. It read, quote, I loved my daughter very much and she loved me. She had three brothers who never stopped looking for the person who did this. She had friends and children who loved her. This is something you never get over. It is a lifetime sentence for the family. End quote. Rhonda, Julie Green's sister, read a long statement I'm abbreviating a little bit here. Quote, to understand how this crime affected myself and my family, it's important to know a little history about the three sisters. There are three sisters, Rhonda, Karen, and Julie. Julie was the youngest. In the early 1980s, my mother's new husband, Doug Green, adopted Julie. After a series of events, Terry and Julie were in and out of foster homes in and around Daytona Beach. They had a hard life from a very early age. Terry found her way. She married and was comfortable. Julie ran away at the age of 12 and wasn't heard from again until she was 15 years old. It was obvious she had been living a high-risk lifestyle, that she was only 15, and I hoped that maybe with a stable home life she might come around, but that wasn't meant to be. On Saturday, January 7, 2006, I contacted my stepfather, Doug, to tell him that Terry had cancer and we could lose her at any time. I asked Doug if he would consider letting Terry be buried in the plot he had next to my mother's. Doug called me the following Saturday, January 14th, and said he had made all the arrangements and I could bury Terry next to my mother. The next morning, Sunday, January 15th, Doug called around 7 a.m. and said, I'm sorry, but I have more bad news. He said he had been contacted by the Daytona Beach Police Department and Julie had been murdered, shot in the head, and now we would also need a cemetery plot for Julie. I remember running outside, hanging up on my stepfather and my husband and daughter rushing into the foyer to see what was wrong. I couldn't speak. Hearing Julie was murdered and knowing Terry was dying was just too much. The way I was feeling emotionally affected everyone around me. This crime against Julie was all I could think about and is still in my head every single day. 
Anisha Ferris, Iwana's niece, read several victims' impact statements from her family. Iwana's brother, Parchel Patton, a retired U.S. Army officer, talked about the pain he felt every year because his sister and daughter shared the same birthday. Iwana's nephew wrote some really moving words, quote, My aunt was a beautiful, hardworking, loving, intelligent, educated woman who had a huge impact on my life and our family. She left an impression on everyone that crossed paths with her because of her smile, positive energy, and amazing personality. My aunt taught me to work hard and to always put 100% effort in whatever I do in life. She modeled this for me through her hard work, education, and constant growth. She was supportive of me and built my confidence up to make me feel like I can do anything. So it hurts deeply that she was no longer here to see all that I have accomplished because of her love and support. I will never forget all these lessons she taught me and will continue to make her proud by doing what she taught and making sure she will never be forgotten. Finally, Anisha read her own victim statement out loud. She said she became a doctor because of her aunt's influence on her. My aunt was the most selfless, loyal, caring, and compassionate woman you could ever meet. She treated everyone like family. She was always happy and the life of any party. My aunt was the first female in my family to attend college, majoring in pre-medical and pre-health studies. Ultimately, she took a passion for caregiving and became a medical technician. And her life's work was centered around just that, caring for others. Anisha talked about how her aunt moved down to Florida to help support Anisha and her young son as Anisha navigated medical school. Anisha later told the press that she was horrified to learn that her beloved aunt's killer was a college student from her own alma mater. She told the news journal, quote, My aunt was not a prostitute. She was a caregiver, a nurse assistant, and medical technician. She devoted her life to caregiving and her family. Our family has been through so much, and we'd like her to be remembered for who she truly was, and it was not a prostitute, end quote. After the victim's impact statements were completed, the defense introduced some witnesses to stand up for Robert Hayes. Florence Hayes, Robert's mom, testified about raising her five kids, Robert, John, Jesse, Terrace, and Adrienne, as a single mom. She said Hayes was always intellectually ahead of the other kids his age and was eventually placed in gifted students' programs. He played the tuba very well as well. Florence admitted that she was a disciplinarian who whooped the kids to keep them in line. She said that for a time, Hayes was overweight and got in fights at school. Florence said that her tough love method worked. All her kids went to college except one who was in the military. Denise W., Hayes' cousin, testified that they grew up in a strict family. She said Hayes was a hard worker and after culinary school was a very good cook. He liked to cook for family events and reunions. He had two daughters and was very involved in their lives. Denise's own kids loved him and called him squeaky. Clifton W., Hayes' cousin, testified about what an upbeat and supportive person Hayes was. He loved to participate in poetry jams, traveling to Miami often to take part. Hayes' attorney had tried to depict his client as having an unnaturally strong sex drive, even initiating his buddy, Clifton, his cousin, to a sex party, talking about patronizing sex workers, and using specific websites intended to facilitate sex hookups. Clifton said that even though all that was true, 
He never saw Hayes being anything but respectful to his fiancée and their daughter. He would FaceTime his California daughter to help her with her homework, and he even flew out to Vegas to see her compete. Clifton said that although Hayes was very tall and had an imposing presence and a deep voice, he was really just a big teddy bear and was a very knowledgeable and caring person. Terrace C., Hayes' sister, testified that she had a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's in human relations. She was 20 years older than Hayes. Their father had been murdered in an alley when Hayes was an infant, and Hayes and their other siblings grew up in a rough neighborhood. Their mom, Florence, did what she could and was battling domestic violence for some of her own life. But she disciplined the kids with a thick leather strap she used to beat them with for even little transgressions, and she was emotionally cold and detached toward her children. Hayes was overweight in his teens, so he was bullied at school and got into fights. Terrace said the family had issues from generations back. Sexual abuse happened to four of the five Hayes kids, including Robert, at the hands of a relative. Alcoholism was rampant, along with the aggressive behavior it caused. Several relatives were drug-addicted. Jason C., Hayes' best friend since college where they met, testified as well. Jason was Hayes' older daughter's godfather. When they lived together, Hayes made him attend church every Sunday. He never got angry or lost his temper, said Jason. Hayes was the peacemaker. He was close with and respectful to his mother. Even now, in prison, he calls and asks how Jason's family is doing. Jason considers him a loyal friend. Connie Sifford, Jason's mother, testified that she met Hayes through her son Jason, and she considers him family. He stayed at her home for a time and was always laughing and respectful and caring. She said, quote, He joined our Presbyterian church. He got involved in the men's ministry, and they did a hundred men in the kitchen cook-off, and Robert won first place for his cheesecake. I could never imagine the person I know to do anything like the crime he's accused of doing. Finally, Natitia Cornelius, a college classmate, described Hayes as the class clown, always making people laugh, enjoying going bowling, loving making baked goods. He donated blood regularly just to help people in need. I am still in disbelief. This is an absolute shock, she said. Defense expert Dr. Joseph Chung Son Wu testified about some brain scans the defense had commissioned. This was a bit of a battle of the experts here, and Wu admitted that he was being paid $350 an hour by the state of Florida for his service to Hayes' defense. He stated that his review of the brain scans showed abnormalities indicating that Hayes might have problems controlling his aggression. He stated, quote, We are seeing evidence of traumatic brain injuries on the left side, predominantly in evidence of autistic spectrum disorder, end quote. He explained the injuries stemmed from Hayes being kicked in the head in high school. This physical condition, plus emotional neglect and sexual abuse when he was a child, combined with adult stressors, including a 2004 breakup, to result in the perfect storm that caused Hayes to lash out and kill when something went wrong or he couldn't control things. I have to say, the prosecution really undermined Wu's testimony on Cross, getting him to admit that he had never examined Hayes, that most people with autism don't kill people, that he had used a control group of only 16 participants in his study, and that he was making as much as $30,000 for testifying for the defense, something he did around the country on a regular basis. 
The state's two medical experts, Dr. Jeffrey Danziger and Dr. Jeffrey Negan, who actually examined Hayes, contradicted Dr. Wu's testimony about the autism and the brain scan, saying it was perfectly normal. And Hayes's behavior as an extroverted, fun-loving, and highly social person belied an autism diagnosis, and there was no history of Hayes ever losing control of his impulses. A second defense doctor was more effective. Dr. Hyman Eisenstein was a clinical psychologist who actually worked with Hayes. He testified, quote, He was privy growing up to violence, both in terms of physical and in terms of sexual violence, end quote. He referenced an incident when Hayes was a kid and he stole some sneakers, got chased, and ended up falling into a retention pond and nearly drowning. He suffered oxygen deprivation as a result and had to be hospitalized. At one point, when a photo of one of his daughters was shown in court so the defense witness could testify that her autism was likely inherited from her father, Hayes became upset. He asked that photos of his children not be shown in court. Dr. Nicole Graham, a clinical psychiatrist, evaluated Hayes over two sessions and reviewed all his records. She said that while he was on the high end of the intelligence range, his executive function capabilities were diminished, resulting in poor judgment. This was why he did things like constantly switch jobs, have a number of noncommittal relationships, fail to pay bills resulting in repossession of cars and eviction from apartments, send sexually explicit texts to co-workers, and so on. She believed that this contributed to his criminal tendencies, which, she said, could have been inherited from his father, who had been murdered in the course of criminal activities. The fact that Hayes was sexually abused as a child and came from a broken home with no father figure did not help. Prosecutor Urbanic, on cross-examination, got Dr. Graham to say that in her two sessions with him, Hayes had denied ever being abused and he had no records of any head injury. He had scored very highly on intelligence tests, registering at having higher intelligence than 80% of the U.S. population. The implication was, Hayes knew exactly what he was doing. On cross, prosecutors asked each defense witness whether Hayes was intelligent, yes, whether he ever showed signs of mental illness, no, and whether he was ever belligerent or violent or impulsive, no. They were setting up an argument to the jury about CCP, cold, calculated, and premeditated. Hayes, they said, was smart and educated. He had a degree in criminal justice and adapted his MO to avoid detection. He got rid of the gun. He used out-of-way locations. They still didn't know what vehicle he used. Somehow he managed to hide that. He took the IDs of his victims. He switched cell phones at some point. In short, he knew exactly what he was doing. In his closing, Assistant State's Attorney Jason Lewis pulled no punches. He reminded the jury that they had recently gotten to know the victims, Laketa, Julie, and Awana, and that they were people, mothers, aunts, sisters, daughters, loved by someone. Hayes planned their murders and carried them out one by one. Lewis said of Hayes, quote, Being a good baker, being someone who donates blood, that doesn't override you taking those pints and pints of blood from Ms. Green, Ms. Gunther, and Ms. Patton, because they don't have blood anymore. Pretty powerful stuff. Chris Anderson, the defense counsel who gave the closing argument in favor of life without parole in lieu of the death penalty, worked hard to show that the crimes were not cold, calculated, and premeditated, the main aggravating factor presented by the state. 
He pointed out that Hayes, a criminal justice major, ignored the DNA issue and failed to use condoms. Hayes patronized scores of prostitutes in his life, but only three ended up dead, showing that he must have been under emotional distress, not calculated or premeditated at those times. And his victims did not suffer, but all died or were rendered unconscious instantly. How considerate. Meanwhile, Anderson argued, the mitigating factors were many. Hayes was a loving father, an educated man, a hard worker, a churchgoer, someone who helped people, a chef, musician, and poetry lover who had a rough childhood and whose father was murdered, someone with executive functioning impairment and impulse control issues. The jury went out at 1.23 p.m. and deliberated for seven hours. They came back in at 8.44 p.m. and court was called into session. Juror number 86 was the foreperson. I'm going to read the very long verdict form as to Laqueta's verdict here because what the jury found was interesting. All the verdicts were identical. We, the jury, find the defendant Robert Tyrone Hayes as follows. As section A, aggravating factor as to count one, the first degree murder was committed in a cold, calculated, and premeditated manner without any presence of moral or legal justification? Answer, yes. Section B, Sufficiency of the aggravating factor as to count one. Reviewing the aggravating factor that we unanimously found to be established beyond a reasonable doubt, we, the jury, unanimously find the aggravating factor is sufficient to warrant a possible sentence of death? Answer, yes. Section C. One or more individual jurors find that one or more mitigating circumstances was established by the greater weight of the evidence? Answer, yes. Section D. Eligibility for the death penalty for count one. We, the jury, unanimously find that the aggravating factors that were proven beyond a reasonable doubt outweigh the mitigating circumstances established in section C above as to count one. Answer, yes. Section E, jury verdict as to death penalty. Having unanimously found that at least one aggravating factor has been established beyond a reasonable doubt in section A, that the aggravating factors are sufficient to warrant a sentence of death, Section B, and the aggravating factors outweigh the mitigating circumstances, Section D, we, the jury, unanimously find that Robert Tyrone Hayes should be sentenced to death? Answer, no. Dated the second day of March, 2022, in Volusia County, Florida. Signature, four-person number 86. So that's interesting, right? The jury sided with the prosecution. They unanimously agreed that the crimes were cold, calculated, and premeditated, and that the mitigating factors did not outweigh the aggravating factors. The death penalty, therefore, was on the table, and they refused to recommend it. All 12 jurors had to do so unanimously, and they did not. The same was true for the verdicts on Laqueta and Julie. Judge Zambrano read the sentence aloud. Okay, Mr. Hayes, the jury having found you guilty of first-degree murder as to count one in the indictment, I adjudge you guilty, sentence you to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. The judge repeated this for counts two and three, sentencing 39-year-old Hayes to three consecutive life terms without parole. Hayes was going to prison for life. He would never get out. The defense filed a motion for a new trial on March 8th. It was denied. Hayes' attorneys filed a notice of appeal on March 21st. It is pending. Here's where things stand now. Hayes is yet to be tried for the murder of Rachel Bay. 
He has been indicted, and prosecutors in Palm Beach County have filed a notice that they intend to seek the death penalty. A status hearing is scheduled for early November. On the Stacey Gage case, basically, they're working to tie this case to Hayes. I believe that the vast majority of the investigators are convinced that Hayes killed her, but as of right now, they can't prove it. R.J. Lariza, the state attorney for the Seventh Judicial Circuit, said, quote, We don't have the forensic evidence right now. This is ongoing. But it is noteworthy that the investigators in Daytona said that upon Hayes' arrest, they had talked to four families, Lakedas, Julie's, Iwana's, and Stacy's. As for living victim L.K., it is unknown whether prosecutors will charge Hayes in her case. It seems clear that she was victimized by him, but absent any hard evidence and to avoid re-traumatizing L.K., prosecutors may decide not to pursue charges. After 18 years, the cases of Laketa Gunther, Julie Green, and Awana Patton are now closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy this show, which is totally self-funded and relies on listener support of our sponsors, please consider giving DNA ID a five-star review. Five-star ratings help to draw the attention of new listeners. And if you'd like to listen ad-free, just join our Patreon. For a minimal monthly donation, you get ad-free episodes and a personal thank you from me. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNA ID Podcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app if you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID, and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.